In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Wonderful to see you all here. Most of you probably have been noticing on the gates outside the cathedral that they're covered uh, this morning with colorful ribbons that bear the names of those we have loved and lost, people who have died by whatever cause since the pandemic began some 20 months ago. We've been tying these ribbons to the gate for the past several weeks. Our original idea was that we were going to take them down from the gate today and display them around the altar tonight as part of the gorgeous service of remembrance. Um, you know, it's okay if the babies want to step out, that's okay. It's okay if they're here too. It's such a beautiful sound. <laughs> so anyway, we're having this beautiful service of remembrance this evening at five o'clock. And uh, we've decided though, we like the ribbons so much that we're gonna leave them up, keep them up through the winter. It just does us good, you know, to, to see them waving at us through those gray winter days. There are well over 250 ribbons on the gate so far which of course just a tiny symbolic display, display compared to the enormity of the losses that we've experienced over the past 20 months. At latest count, 755,000 persons in the United States who have died of COVID. Over a quarter, over three quarters of a million people uh, over 5 million persons that we know of worldwide who have died of COVID and still people living in denial of the virus, living in denial of science and in denial of their role in spreading the virus by refusing to get vaccinated. The levels of denial at this point are staggering, you know? Early on in the pandemic, I naively thought that, you know, once people started catching the virus themselves, or once their loved ones started getting sick, they would change their tune and take science seriously. But as Ernst Becker uh, reminds us in his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death, our fear of death does not lead us into greater and greater rationality. We will stifle the rising panic of our mortality by any means necessary. There's nothing scientific or rational about it. The first time I had a visceral reckoning with my own mortality, I was in my mid-40s. I was, I was actually climbing the stairs of my little home one evening. I suddenly got this vision of myself on my deathbed. The, the sight of me as an old man dying it just rose up in me in an instant with perfect clarity, my gray head on a pillow staring into the beyond, and I heard myself say, and I never wrote that damn novel. <laughs> the vision lasted for just a second, but it sent this shockwave through my body, and the next day, I found myself at five in the morning and uh, wide awake, and this voice that said, up, and before I knew it, I was sitting in front of a pad of paper and I was writing. And I wrote every day for a year after that. And by the end of that year, I had finished that damn novel. 
It's not a very good novel, mind you. Uh, it'll never get published, at least not in its present form, but you know what? That's okay. It served its function. It helped me feel some kind of permanent extension of myself that would survive my death. It took the edge off, in other words. It was my immortality project, to use Ernst Becker's phrase. We all do this, we all participate in symbolic worlds and meaning-making activities that help us contain and manage our fear of death. According to Becker, it's what makes the world go round, it's what gets us out of bed in the morning. We, to quote him, we achieve ersatz immortality by sacrificing ourselves to conquer an empire, to build a temple, to write a book, to establish a family, to accumulate a fortune, to further progress and prosperity. A rabbi once said that we humans are merely animals with brains that trick us into thinking we're not. What COVID has taught me is that as a species, we humans are not too good at sorting out good immortality projects from the bad ones. Our fear of death can drive us to embrace harebrained conspiracy theories belched out by blowhard politicians and the cryptic mutterings of internet con artists, but they can also drive us to the sayings of Jesus and to the Buddha or Hildegard we participate in immortality projects when we go to church, when we feed the hungry, when we give to charities, and when we attend spiritual formation classes. It's no coincidence that today, when we're doing a bunch of baptisms, on this same day we're commemorating the lives of those who have died, because death is the question that baptism answers. But here's the thing, and this is what Ernst Becker got wrong, I think, in this act of baptism. We're not reacting against death. Instead, we are ritually embracing death. We're looking death square in the face. Baptism is, after all, a ritual drowning. And by participating in this ritual, we are entering through the door of death and coming out the other side. This is not necessarily a pleasant experience. Every priest I know is deeply familiar with the look of sheer panic on the faces of babies as we hold them over the baptismal font. The cries of these babies as they're being baptized, sometimes howls and shrieks that ring through the sanctuary out into the street. These are perfectly appropriate expressions of mortality. They are meant to alarm all of us cutting through our own denial systems to remind us of the instinctive dread of death. And then when, we're all, when they are all warm and safe again, nestled in the arms of a loving parent, the light of the baptismal candle glowing above them, a pattern will have been established in their minds, a pattern that will repeat itself at the end of their lives when their perfectly natural terror in the face of death gives way to the deep peace in the light of God. This morning we heard about poor Lazarus in our gospel. Poor Lazarus went through his own baptism, if you will. 
But for, what, for him, it was real, not symbolic. The poor guy had died a natural death, had been laid to rest in a tomb for four days. He would have been happily passing into complete oblivion if it had not been for his sister Mary, who laid this guilt trip on Jesus, <laughs> coming up on him saying, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, the guy asked, did Jesus even ask for consent when he brought Lazarus back from the dead, right? If I were Lazarus, I'm not so sure I'd have agreed to being pulled out of my nice, warm resting place at the bosom of Abraham to have to rise from the tomb like some zombie and endure another 30 years of being paraded around as the famous Lazarus, the guy who was raised from the dead by Jesus, having to sign autographs all day long and having to tell the same story again and again and again. In fact, and this is true, there's this old legend about Lazarus that after he rose from the grave, he never again cracked a smile or laughed. The old preachers used to say it was because he was so frightened by the vision of purgatory that he got while he was down there. I suspect it was because he was perfectly happy where he was and he did not much appreciate being made an object lesson by Jesus. It made him chronically grumpy. I know I would be. Well, who knows, I might be wrong, but I have talked to enough people who have had their own near-death experiences. I have seen enough completely amazing things with my own eyes to know that what we're doing here today in this ritual of baptism is not merely a symbolic exercise of, uh, in order to neurotically ward off death. It is, in fact, a reenactment of something that is deeply true and very real. I have spoken directly to three people moments after they had a vision of the Virgin Mary hovering over an ICU bed of a loved one. I can attest, along with every doctor who examined this guy, that he was definitely dying. His recovery was thought impossible. Nonetheless, the Virgin Mary appeared, and to every doctor's amazement, the man recovered. I spoke with the pastor who was with them, who witnessed this apparition of Mary. Moments after he witnessed it, he was deeply shaken by it because, as he said to me, I'm a Lutheran, I don't even believe in the Virgin Mary. <laughs> and now I have to rethink everything. He just walked away just shaking his head. I have been with a man in the hospital room in Michigan as he died in the middle of the night, like one or two in the morning, and a minute after he died, the phone rang and it was his daughter calling from Texas, where she had been sound asleep. She told me that her father had just woken her up and said goodbye. As a hospital chaplain and as a priest, I've spoken to countless people who have had near-death experiences all reporting the same tunnel of light, the same life-altering feelings of peace and joy and love, the same welcome party of beloved ones who had passed before them. And I myself have had my own life-changing encounter with a being of light who, to my great surprise, floated into my life at my most desperate hour 
and poured out beams of mercy and love onto my heart and soul. If I hadn't seen and experienced these things myself, I would probably agree with Ernst Becker. I would dismiss these phenomena as merely neurotic psychological reactions induced by desperate denial of death. But my actual experiences tell me something differently. I can't explain it. It doesn't make any sense to my rational mind. There's no getting around it, though. There are indeed real spiritual forces at work. We experience them as angels and saints and spirits of the dead. They seem to live at the place where our souls intersect with God's reality. And as much as my feeble brain wants to keep them contained within my little box of symbol and myth and legend, in truth, I cannot deny what my own eyes have witnessed, that God is actually real. Jesus is real. Mary is real. For reasons I cannot fully explain, Guan Yin, who some people call the Buddhist Virgin Mary, is real. These beings appear to us in our most profound moments of emptiness as we lose our grip on everything we think we need or want, as we relinquish our own powers and capacities, as our egos finally give up grasping after attachments and desires and ambitions, as our souls are set free from our bodies. This divine reality is made manifest to us at the gate of death, whether it's the gate of our physical death or the gate of our ego death in confessions of absolute trust and faith in God. This reality is real, as real as the water that will soon be poured out onto the heads of these persons being baptized. In a few minutes, we'll be standing in the presence of that reality once again, as those who are baptized are symbolically brought to the brink of death and pass through the gate into the presence of light. I pray that all of us who witness these mysteries are given the grace to honor that reality with our lives. Call it God, or Brahman, or the Tao, or the Living Buddha, or the Great Big Thing, or Reality with a capital R, whatever, all our words and ideas and concepts are entirely inadequate to the task. But in this house, we experience it and we proclaim it as the real presence of God in Christ Jesus. So be it. Somebody say amen. amen. Thank you.